Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Tessa Clark is the founder and CEO of Olio. Olio is an app that connects neighbours with each other and with local businesses, so surplus food and household items can be shared, not thrown away. In this episode, Tessa shares her eureka moment for building Olio, the shocking impact of food waste globally, scaling the business to 6 million users, the pains of raising investments as a female founder, and how to build a business that's both for profit and for purpose. Hey, Tessa, absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Much appreciated. Great to be with you. Great. Well, I always like to start with delving a little bit into the, the background of the guests. So I just wonder if you could share like some of the, the key moments, I guess, of like if it's upbringing or career or other experiences that led you to start an impact business. Yeah. So I think there's sort of a couple of things that brought me to where I am today. Uh, the first is the fact that I'm a farmer's daughter. So when you grow up on a farm, uh, I think you grow up with a real affinity for nature and the environment. And so I've always been really, really passionate about everything to do with protecting and preserving uh, our environment. Um, I then went off and had a fairly classic corporate career uh, and didn't really think much more uh, about working in the environmental space, to be honest, until a seemingly inconsequential moment in my life seven and a half years ago now, where I was moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men told me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. And obviously, because I'm a farmer's daughter, uh, and I know how much hard work goes into producing food, I hate food waste, and so wasn't prepared to toss this food in the bin. So instead, set out onto the streets to try and find someone to give this food to. And I failed miserably. uh, So I very despondently went back to my apartment. And when the packing men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food in the bottom of my packing boxes. And that was when I thought, this is ridiculous, the lengths I'm going to, to avoid throwing food in the bin. Why isn't there a simple app for this? Because I knew there's an app for everything. And so it very much feels that with the founding of Olio, I've kind of come full circle uh, back to my origins and my upbringing, but I'm kind of melding with it the 20 plus uh, sort of years of, of corporate experience that I had in between. Yeah, I love that. And before we start speaking specifically about earlier, I always like to spend a bit of time just talking more about like the problem space and, and like the area of impact that company focuses on, which obviously in this case is food waste. Now, I read that one third of all food produced is um, like globally goes to waste. I mean, that, that's shocking in itself. But like, can you shed some light on like, how is that the case? How is the third of all food going to waste globally? Yeah, it's absolutely bonkers, isn't it? Uh, and it's worth over a trillion US dollars, the amount of food that is wasted each year. It's really important to uh, think about sort of where in the world that waste is taking place. So in sort of, quote, developed countries, actually, the majority of food waste takes place at the end of the supply chain. So it's kind of us in our homes, and to a lesser extent, in a retail store level, whereas in, you know, quote, unquote, developing uh, markets, it's much more food loss, actually. So that's um, what happens at the very beginning of the supply chain. So that is struggling to get food sort of off of the farms and through 
distribution. That's generally due to a, a lack of uh, infrastructure there. So we throw away a third of all the food we produce. Uh, alongside that widespread food waste, we have equally widespread hunger. So there are 800 million people who go to bed hungry at night, who could be fed on just one quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And the environmental impact of food waste is absolutely horrific. So if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And the reason for that is because a land mass larger than China is used every year to grow food that's never been eaten. So that is land that has been deforested, species driven to extinction, soil that's been degraded, a quarter of humanity's fresh water is used to grow food that is never eaten. And then that food goes on a very, very long resource and energy intensive supply chain. And when a third of it gets thrown away, the majority ends up going to landfill and when food waste ends up in landfill, it creates methane, which is 25 times more deadly than CO2. So that's why if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And all of that is kind of quite overwhelming. But to bring it back to sort of us in our homes and to contextualize that a little bit, the carbon emissions from just one kilogram of food waste, so let's imagine your food waste caddy, if you've got one in your kitchen, is equivalent to the carbon emissions that result from landfilling 25,000 plastic bottles. So one kilogram of food waste equals 25,000 plastic bottles. So it is no exaggeration to say that solving the problem of food waste really is one of the greatest challenges facing humanity today. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think um, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, there seems to be a real ignorance. So like if you ask, you stop a person in the street and ask them, what do you think are the main causes or contributors to climate change? I don't think someone would say food waste. Like, is that is that just because you know, in, in developed countries like the UK, people just take it for granted and they just go to supermarkets, see it on the shelf, pick it up and don't even think twice? Or, or is it more like marketing? It's just hidden away? Yeah, I think you are absolutely correct. Most people have no clue that food waste alone accounts for roughly 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So, uh, and actually, a collaborative piece of work by several hundred of the leading climate change scientists called Project Drawdown, stat ranked the top 100 solutions to the climate crisis, and in position number one came reducing food waste, and it came above electric cars, above solar power, and above a plant-based diet. Yet most people have no idea about that. And I think it's probably because food seems very natural, it's organic, it sort of it comes from the ground, it returns to the ground. It's hard to see on a surface level how bad it can be. I think the other challenge around the food waste area is that when people think of food waste, most people assume that most food waste takes place at a retail store level. That's the first place their minds go to their local supermarket. And actually that couldn't be further from the truth here in the UK in terms of where food waste actually takes place. So retail stores are responsible for just 2% of all food waste, and we in our homes are responsible for half of all food waste. So a typical British uh, family throws away over £700 sterling of perfectly good food every year. It adds up to over £14 billion. So that, on the one hand, is incredibly depressing when you realise that we, you know, all of us are responsible for half of that problem that I've just outlined. But on the other hand, it can be 
very exciting, very energizing because it means that we can all play a part in helping to solve it. 100%. And I like we we had a food waste caddy, I think we've had it for about a year and a half now. And just psychologically, it makes such a big difference to how you are in the home, like just seeing what goes into that bin versus just chucking stuff into the general bin, not thinking about it, just as a, yeah. A household makes us think about what's been wasted etc yeah it does and the other thing i would also encourage people to remember when you're throwing away some food as your hand is sort of hovering over the bin is to realize that when you're throwing away food you're also throwing away all the water that went into creating that food for, so you might look at an apple or a banana that you're about to chuck away and think well it's just an apple it's just a banana but actually each of those require over 100 liters of water to produce just one of them so when you're throwing away just an apple or just a banana, you're also throwing away over 100 litres of water. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. It's super insightful. And I should probably share that um, there is a huge section on the earlier website that talks more about kind of the food waste problem and the causes and, and some pretty shocking stats if people want to educate themselves more. Um, to talk about Olio now, uh, specifically, um, can you explain to listeners what Olio is, what it does? Yes. So Olio exists to tackle this enormous problem of food waste, but also the problem of waste more generally. And we do that by connecting people with their local community so that you can give away rather than throw away your surplus food and, and other household items. So how it works is you snap a photo of anything you've got that you don't want or need to add it to Olio. People living nearby get an alert, letting them know that something new has been added. They can then browse the listings, request what they want. And then they pop round to pick it up. And that pickup location could either be your home, sort of the pickup could take place on the doorstep, or it can take place at some other uh, public location. What's really quite remarkable about Olio is just how strong the demand is. So the majority of food listings added to the app are requested in less than 21 minutes. And the majority of household items are requested in less than two hours. So our number one challenge as a business is to encourage absolutely everybody to take this 10 seconds that it requires to share that item that you might have that you're thinking about throwing away or that's just gathering dust in your home and to give it away to someone living nearby rather than uh, throw it away. Definitely, definitely. And if I can take you back to kind of the early stages of Olio. So you mentioned kind of where the, the concepts and idea came from when you were relocating back to the UK. Um, if I if I go back to kind of like the 2015, 2016 years and I think about consumers and people, like the behavior was very different then. Like I think there was a still like an even bigger lack of awareness. I think it's in the last two, three years, people have really started thinking about living more responsibly in terms of like where they buy products from, who they buy products from and how they live within the house. Like it was what what did those early days look like? Like was there a it was a case of trying to convince a lot of people that the the, the world was ready for this concept was it potentially a little bit too early for where, where people were at that point and there was a heavy amount of education needed so without a doubt we were about five or six years too early to market the reality is that when we first started off on this journey no one knew about the problem of food waste and, and to be perfectly honest no one really cared uh, and certainly we weren't collectively awakened to the enormity of the climate crisis so, yes, in our early days, we had to do an awful lot of sort of banging the drum and raising awareness about not only this problem, but then uh, introducing people to Olio as a really simple and easy to use solution. 
But what we discovered very quickly is that when you're trying to go from zero to one, the most important thing that you need to do is really focus on the super early adopters. And you need to forget about all the, the naysayers um, who you'll get to sort of in due course. But when you've got very limited amount of resources and time and bandwidth and capacity, you'd be laser focused on those first sort of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 early adopters and, and forget about everybody else. Make sure that you build a product that really resonates with and works for those people. And that is what will enable you to kind of get that flywheel started. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and like, what what did it look like in the days of like, who was the team? Was it just you and your co-founder? Did you manage to get some other people involved quite early early days and like that first version of the product? Did that look very similar to what earlier is now or has it changed quite a bit? So in the very earliest of days, it was myself and my co-founder, Sasha. Um, we had a friend of ours called Ben, um, who was supporting us on a sort of voluntary basis, uh, and also a friend of ours called Jane. But really kind of the team at its at its core was myself and Sasha. We managed to get the first version of the app built by using an agency called Simple Web in Bristol, who we did a deal with them whereby we gave them half price. Uh, sorry, we did a deal with them whereby they gave us half price day rates. And in exchange, we gave them a small equity stake in the company when we did our next raise. So it was kind of myself and Sasha, a couple of friends helping out and the app built by an external agency. The first version of the app absolutely did not look anything like the Olio app today uh, and sort of quite deliberately so. So it was extremely streamlined, very, very basic. We built literally only the functionality that was required to enable someone to put a listing on the app, someone else to see it, someone else to request it, and the first person to take it down. That was it. So we sort of drank the Kool-Aid on the lean startup methodology um, and sort of read the book by Eric Ries multiple times and found that a really, really instructive way of building the business. And there were many features that prior to reading that book, we were convinced were essential for us to be able to launch. Uh, and we didn't get around to launching them because quite frankly, our community told us they weren't sufficiently essential for you know, two, sometimes even three years post-launch. So really, really important to start with that completely paired back MVP, which is really aimed at just kind of testing your core hypotheses. Yeah, 100%. And um, I think one of the things that I think is truly unique about Olio is, is that community aspect and what makes Olio so special. Um, but that's difficult because I think in the end of the days, you kind of need like two sides to the community. You need the people obviously sharing their, the household's goods and the products and the food, but you also need the people that want that as well. Um, and trying to get off the ground, I, meant, I imagine, was quite challenging. So was that a case of it starts out with more, you know, friends and family and like quite a closed community? Or was it you focused on like a particular geography and really trying to get people on the app in a small area and then expand out? So the very first version of the app could only be used by people in five postcodes in North London because we knew we were building a two-sided marketplace and given that it required the sort of physical handover of an item we knew those both sides of the marketplace had to live in close proximity to one another and so we were very very focused just on that small geography for many months before we then expanded and made the app available across uh, the rest of London and then it was sort of six months after launching the very first version that we made the app available across the rest of the UK. And 
all of those sort of early users were definitely early adopters. So we found that they were predominantly female. They were people who hated waste. They were concerned about the climate. They had a really strong interest in connecting with their local community. They were often vegan or vegetarian. They often cycled places instead of uh, driving. So we got very good at spotting who our early adopter was and tailoring our messaging and communications accordingly. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, and, and I believe now that Olio's obviously the reach is huge, like tens of countries around the world, millions of users. Like, can you confirm what, what is the scale of Olio today? And, and like, what have been some of the things over the journey that have really accelerated that growth? Has it been like marketing or has it been word of mouth, referrals? Like what's, what's really led to that, to that growth today? So today we have over 6 million people have joined Olio and our community has collectively given away just over 60 million portions of food and has also given away over 5 million other household items. The core drivers of our growth have been word of mouth, absolutely. So people who use Olio love Olio. They rave about it and they tell their friends about it. So that's been incredibly powerful. And sort of linked to that, very early on, we developed something we call our ambassador program. So we give people the option of either receiving digital materials from us that they can then use to spread the word online about Olio and or they can order physical marketing materials, so posters, letters, flyers. So our community can do hyperlocal guerrilla marketing on our behalf in their local communities. So the ambassador program has definitely been very powerful. PR has been important for us as well. We've got a really kind of unique and interesting story to tell. Um, but perhaps the most powerful growth driver has been when we evolved the model to also help solve the problem of food waste at a local business level. And so this is today called our Food Waste Heroes program. We have over 50,000 volunteers. These are trained members of our community who we sort of recruit by the app. We train them on our food safety management system. And then once you're trained up, you can claim a collection slot. And a collection slot is an opportunity to visit a local store. So it could be a Tesco or an Iceland or a Pret-a-Manger. And at the end of the day, you will collect all of that store's unsold food. You'll take it home. You'll add it to the app. Within minutes, your neighbors are requesting it. And minutes later, they're popping around and picking it up. And we scaled across Tesco's store portfolio through COVID. And that really was a massive accelerant, along with the impact uh, of COVID as well, which meant that people suddenly found themselves wanting to connect with the community. They were much more aware of the climate crisis. Um, they, that was kind of a force multiplier on our rate of growth. And we, we grew 5x through that period of time. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and my next question or, or point was going to be around the Food Waste Heroes program, because it, to, to be clear, like Olio is a, is a company that's for profit and for purpose. And although the, mostly we're talking about the, the kind of free community sharing app, you obviously have um, a revenue model as well, which is linked to the Food Waste Heroes program. Can you just explain how you, how you do make money? Yeah. So we have always 
been very clear that Olio is a business, not a charity. And that's because we're trying to solve this enormous problem. We've got to scale as quickly as possible. And we haven't seen any charities scale at the pace at which businesses do. So, uh, and we are kind of firm believers that the new business paradigm is going to have to be uh, profit with purpose. So we're always very clear from day one that we wanted to be a business and therefore we needed a sustainable business model. Our core business model at the moment is the revenues that we generate from the businesses that we provide the service I've just described uh, to you. So at the moment, those businesses are paying waste contractors to take unsold food off to landfill or anaerobic digestion or livestock feed. And instead, they now pay us to ensure that that food is redistributed and eaten by uh, lots of people in the local community. And we share back with those businesses their impact data and testimonials and lots of great stories. And those businesses are doing it for several reasons. First of all, they know that they've got to get to net zero. And a really important part of that is stopping throwing away food. Secondly, their employees are telling them that they really dislike being paid to throw away perfectly good food, in particular, given that we have a cost of living crisis unfolding as we speak. And then thirdly, customers are also saying, sort of demanding better from these businesses and insisting that they find a solution to their food waste problem. Yeah, no, and again, I huge love folio well because of how you're helping people locally like in their household and local community like do good and have positive impact but also how you're actually helping businesses become more responsible um with the revenue model was was that always the plan was that always the case or did you explore like other revenue models and, and if so like how come you didn't continue those so uh, no it was not always the plan um and i think that was a really important learning for us, we deliberately did not start monetizing until we were a couple of years into our journey because we knew that there was so much that was unproven about earlier that we need to figure out from first principles. And also we had very, very limited developer resources. So it made no sense whatsoever to have them focusing on trying to monetize a handful of people. Uh, in reality, their time was far better spent trying to build a really engaging uh, product. So we could not have imagined the Food Waste Heroes program revenue model, um, but we absolutely, through the entrepreneurial journey, found that model. And we've had lots of other models that we have thought about and either experimented with and didn't work or have not yet done them or we've sort of discounted them. But for sure, I think sort of in common with many impact and climate tech businesses, because we're doing things that haven't been done before, that means that a lot of stuff does have to be invented and designed from first principles, in, including the business model. And so we have to be very open-minded and, and iterative and fast learning in that area. And as someone who works with a range of impact businesses, like I, I do find that businesses in general want to be more responsible and want to take responsibility, especially if they know they're, they're part of the problem. Um, but a lot of time it's just about giving them solutions of how to do that, which is obviously something that Olio is making very easy for the big supermarket chains to do when it comes to like managing their food waste more efficiently. It's obviously been you know, um, a long, a long journey so far. I'm sure lots of twists and turns. Like, what have been when you look back some of the like real tough, challenging moments so far, or like the biggest blockers you've had to kind of work through as a business? Well, I think monetization has always been a challenge, continues to be a challenge, I'm sure will be um, for quite some time. 
along with many other businesses, right? It's it's not a sort of once and done type thing. Uh, in the early days, growing with virtually no resources and capital was very challenging. And that was really what helped us double down on the ambassador program. So that was a sort of high quality, low cost route to market. And then thirdly, fundraising has uh, always been challenging as a female founded tech for good early or pre-revenue business. It's definitely been difficult unlocking financing, although we have persisted um, and we have now raised over $50 million over several rounds. Um, so it can be done, but it was definitely hard. Yeah. And, and that's sort of something I wanted to spend a bit of time chatting to you about and shedding some light on was the yeah, the fact that I believe it's 1% of VC funding goes to female founders. And I think it's only like 10% goes to, to mixed founding teams. Um, can you can you expand a little bit more on like your experiences as a female founder team in trying to raise money from VCs? And, and secondly, what you think needs to change within the VC, VC ecosystem for this to be improved? Well, I mean, first, I think so the data speaks for itself uh, in terms of how challenging it is to fundraise with just 1%, as you say, of, of all VC capital going to female-founded businesses. Um, I think the sort of the main solution to that problem uh, would be if VCs had investment committees that were, for example, 50% female, you know, if they actually had sort of diverse and representative ICs, then I believe that we would go a long way to solving that problem virtually overnight, uh, not only for female founders, but for diverse founders of all types. So I do think an enormous amount of responsibility lies with the gatekeepers of capital. That's obviously not happening nearly quickly enough. Uh, and so the only sort of helpful advice I'd give to diverse founders who are looking to fundraise is one sort of know the odds and prepare yourself for it mentally and emotionally. Um, two, I definitely recommend watching a video by a professor called Dana Kanzi, who talks about how female founders get asked what's referred to as prevention questions. So they're all about the downside and the risks associated with your business. And male founders get asked promotion questions, which is all about the upside and how fast can you grow this. Uh, and the trick to overcoming that is to answer a prevention question with a promotion response. And then the final piece of advice would be to really make sure that it's very clear in your deck, sort of upfront, what your credentials are, and also make sure that you outline sort of the commercial business case for the investment opportunity nice and early in the deck as well. Really good advice. And yeah, we had um, Molly Johnson-Jones from Flexo on here a couple of shows ago, and um, she was talking about her experience. She's co-founded uh, with, with a male co-founder. She said she would get all those preventative questions and just felt like she was batting aside objections and then he would get all the nice, easy questions about kind of growth and, and how far this could go. And, and it was a really frustrating experience that she's also learned from. Um, but you did raise a, a, a huge Series B funding round um, last year. Um, and I, I guess I was keen to understand like what that, what that money has been enabled you to do. Like where's that money been spent? How is that going to change things folio moving forwards? So our Series B raise was transformative for us. We had very little capital to run the business for the six years prior. The first thing we did was to invest in 
a C-suite of leaders to join the business so for our first ever CTO and CPO and a managing director for the Food Waste Heroes program, etc. And then we've been recruiting for heads of positions as well. So there's been a big investment in people. The other thing we've really been investing in is tools and systems and capabilities. And really, it's just an enormous transition that the organization is going through from being a sort of a series A to post series B a startup, but it's hugely exciting because um, it really is going to enable us to unlock our full potential. So kind of like to move on to running and, and growing like a, a full purpose and full profit business. Um, so only has obviously gone through a few stages of growth and I believe you're going to double again this year. Like what are the, what are the things you've doubled down on when building Olio to, to ensure it stays true to its roots? Uh, I think there are two things we've done that have been absolutely critical the first is that as we have been recruiting, we have not once lowered the bar that we hold for mission obsession. So absolutely everyone who joins Olio must be not just mission aligned, but mission obsessed. And that has been invaluable in terms of protecting the magic of the company culture that we have. And then the second thing that we have done is make sure that our company values, which are to be inclusive, resourceful, caring and ambitious, are fully embedded through absolutely everything that we do in the organization from our recruitment process through to our 360 processes through to just the day-to-day decision making that we are taking in the organization and if you have a group of people who are mission obsessed who truly sort of breathe live and breathe your company values then it creates a really fantastic uh, culture and environment and encourages people to perform their best Nice. And um, you've done a lot of hiring. You've got a lot of hiring plans. Um, it's a very competitive market still at the moment to, to, to find and attract the right talent. So I guess two questions. like One, generally, how do you feel Odeo competes for top talent? And secondly, I, I read uh, one of your job descriptions and there were some great stats there around how diverse the team is. Um, and that's something that all startups struggle with. So how have you gone about building such a diverse team and set of people? So in terms of answering your first question about sort of how we compete in the jobs market, I really do think it does come back to our mission and having such a clear and such a strong mission. It's very positive. It's very purpose driven. And I think that so many people nowadays are sick and tired of feeling like they're part of the problem and they want to be part of the solution. So we have, without a doubt, benefited enormously from that and I'm just very humbled, to be honest, by the caliber of talent that we have been able to attract. And I do think that the diversity of our team is also um, a significant draw for people, as well as the fact that we have always been a remote first business. So people do work really flexibly and autonomously at Olio. And I think uh, more and more people are looking for that sort of opportunity. In terms of diversity, it hasn't happened by accident, um, but it hasn't been as difficult as people might think. The most important thing is you just decide that it's really important to you as a business. And that's been really important to Sasha and I from day one. And so we really took the time to make sure that in the very foundations of the business, we were recruiting in um, diverse people. And then what happens is it becomes um, sort of a virtuous cycle because no one wants to be the token anybody in an organization but if they're joining a truly diverse team then 
uh, it's a it's a really attractive place to be. Com- completely agree, and and something I've I've heard you talk about um, before is also um, look for people that are mission obsessed, which is quite an interesting term. It's quite a strong term. Um, I just wondered if you could explain what that means to you and how that differs from, I guess, kind of like mission aligned, mission driven. Um, well, I don't want to give away all the trade secrets, but uh, for me, having interviewed now hundreds and hundreds of people, it's actually really easy to tell if people are truly mission obsessed. Um, their eyes light up. It jumps out of them, their personal connection to what we're doing and why. Um, and, there, yeah, there are just a few kind of simple tells that make it really clear to us whether someone is just mission aligned, which increasingly there are more and more people who are mission aligned um, versus someone who is truly mission obsessed. It's one of those things. It's like sort of, you know, true love. You know it when you see it. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Um, awesome. Um, that's pretty much it. So um, if obviously you're going to be hiring throughout the rest of the year, if someone's interested in working at Olio, where's like the best place for them to follow what's like open roles and, and get in touch? So either follow us on LinkedIn or you can go to the careers page on our website. Our website is olioeox.com and you can sign up to be alerted whenever we have any vacancies. Spot on. Thank you very much for your time today, Tess. I much appreciate No worries. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.